This is episode 27 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this podcast, I talk about the life of the incomparable Albini. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 27. I've taken a few weeks off recently from the podcast due to my terribly busy performing uh, schedule, Um, but I've not been away from the research and just haven't been recording. In fact, I have spent the last few days studying one of my favorite topics in magic, goldfish tricks. Yeah, you heard that right. Goldfish tricks. I love tricks with goldfish. Uh, In fact, I've included many of them in my shows over the years. And uh, I recently picked up one of the aerial fishing poles and uh, it was missing a part. So I decided to do a little bit of research on it and see if I could find out a little bit more about the trick and in the process maybe come across a photo or an image of the missing piece. And wow, was I ever in for a surprise. Now, I knew that a fellow named Professor Mingus is credited with the creation of the fish trick. It was lauded at the time as one of the most original effects in all of magic. And his method of accomplishing the trick was actually different than I expected. I'd assumed he used a fishing pole kind of like that, uh, the one that John Booth used, but he did not. Uh, His routine allowed him to catch fish after fish after fish, and live fish at that. Of course, the John Booth routine does also, but the method is slightly different. And by the way, I know that John Booth wrote about his routine in uh, Marvels of Mystery, which I have, but it's in storage, so I, you know can't access it at the moment. Um, As for the missing piece, um, I have already figured out how to fabricate a part that will um, do what I needed to do. Basically, I just needed to hold the fishing line in place, so it's not a major thing. I plan to do something a little different with the lure and the bait, and I don't know currently if I'm going to produce multiple fish or just one, uh, but, um, like, you know, That will come with time. Now, back to Professor Mingus for a moment. His real name was Walter Mingus Hoppler. He was born in East Orange, New Jersey in 1857, and in 1893, at the age of 36, he invented the fish trick. And all this, according to a short piece in Mahatma Magazine in May of 1902. The article goes on to state that Professor Mingus performed at Proctor's Theater in New York and later at Tony Pastor's Theater for a week in New York in 1995, but despite his popular and novel act, he would be out of performing by 1896 when a relative of his died and left him with quite a bit of money. Now, the catching a fish trick uh, would next be seen in the act of William Robinson, who was going by the name Chung Ling Su. And I think he was one of the first to do the fish trick after Mingus. Did he have Mingus's permission? I, doubtful. But at any rate, in 1905, Sue revealed his method of the trick to the News of the World newspaper. And here's what it said. Anyone may now know how Chungling Sue does the goldfish trick, but it does not follow that having been told, one can do it. When Chung Ling Su casts in the air with his rod and line, little Sui Sin, the celestial handmaiden, stands meekly some yards away, holding a glass bowl of water. The hook is a powerful magnet, and if one could examine the goldfish caught, one would detect 
pieces of metal attached to the bodies of the finned captures. The live goldfish repose in little Suicine's sleeve, and when a more than usually skillful cast brings the magnetic bait for a second into the interior of the girl's sleeve, a catch has at once been effected, and the fish is seen dangling and wiggling in the air at the end of the line. Of course, his, <laughs> his explained method is pure hogwash. Uh, and in keeping with the policy of not telling you the secrets behind the tricks, I can say that Mingus's actual method, and for that, the method of Chung Ling Su, uh, they're far more surefire than this fake explanation. Now, in a 1902 issue of Stanyan's Magic, it mentions that Chung Ling Su and his catching a goldfish in the air trick, they point out how strong the trick is in Chung's hands, whereas it can fall completely flat in other people's hands. Now, from the book, The Master Magicians by Walter Gibson, here's a description of Chung presenting his mystery. Chung Ling Su took a long fishing rod, and with a line and a hook on the end, he took the hook and he affixed a tiny bit of bait, which appeared to be about a half-inch portion of a worm. Gazing intently into the air, he extended the end of the pole over the footlights so that the baited hook dangled over the heads of the audience, and he swept it back and forth, and then he whipped the pole upward. Instantly, a squirming goldfish appeared upon the hook, glittering in the spotlight. Struggling to get away, as Su swung the end of the line towards himself, the Chinese wizard deftly plucked the goldfish from the rod and dropped it into a glass bowl of water held by Sui Sin. There the fish swam about excitedly, while the magician again baited his hook and made another cast above the heads of the audience. And again he caught a shimmering goldfish on the hook and tossed it into the bowl with the first. Again and again he swung the line with its baited hook, catching a third, a fourth, a fifth, all alive and wiggling, until the bowl appeared to be a mass of gold. Now, I can just picture this incredible mystery in my mind. Chung, with his flowing robes, dancing about the stage, stopping to cast the line, catching a fish and taking it back to the bowl, then again going into this dance of movement as he casts the line out into the audience. Wow. I can see clearly where it would fall flat in the hands of many lesser performers because the effect combines timing and movement and mystery all together. And if any one of those things is missing, the effect really falls flat. Uh, many artists have adapted it to their shows, some of them more successful than others. Of the successful ones, John Booth, of course, who I mentioned earlier, Alan Shaxon, and Matt King. Consider for a moment how different Matt King's presentation is as compared to that of Chung Ling Su's. I love when performers take an effect and really make it their own. And Max is simply brilliant and so well-structured and highly, highly entertaining. Okay, enough of the goldfish, okay? Now to today's feature. If you've listened to any of the previous podcasts, you may have realized I love digging up information on long-forgotten magicians. And today, I get to share with you the story of one such person, who I'd actually heard of, but for whatever reason, I'd forgotten about him. His name was Abraham Lasky, and he was born in Poland in 1860. He was known professionally as the incomparable Albini, but he did not actually begin his performing career as Albini. His first stage name was Rosini, but he eventually dropped it in favor of 
Herbert Albini. And there actually was already a performer using the name Albini. He was going by Lieutenant Albini. And this Albini was not too pleased about the situation, but the two apparently had some sort of confrontation and Herbert Albini agreed to change his name under certain circumstances. And apparently those circumstances were never met because Herbert Albini never changed his stage name. And he went on to have greater fame than the lesser known Lieutenant Albini. Now, Herbert Albini's claim to fame seems to be the invention of the small egg bag. Now, the egg bag dates back to the time of Sir Isaac Fox in the 18th century, but the Fox egg bag was a large affair capable of producing many, many eggs and even a chicken. But the Albini egg bag was the first small egg bag, just large enough for your hand to fit in it, and it allowed for very clever effects and adaptations. A March 1895 Mahatma magazine lists him as... Albini, the king of cards. Apparently he did some sort of card manipulation act as well as his egg bag. He was also known not to repeat a trick with the same deck of cards, so he carried cases of decks with him. Eventually, he featured many of the latest illusions of the day, and he printed a number of his posters uh, with the words, $15,000 in equipment. And speaking of his posters, uh, he had a number of very beautiful full-color lithographs, uh, which, frankly, all but one were, like, brand new to me. His title on the poster listed him, as I mentioned earlier, the incomparable Albini. I found nine posters so far, and there's very possibly more. In fact, I found a poster from earlier in his career, more of a photo poster, and uh, it's a very uh, interesting image. One thing that I found really, really fascinating about Albini was his, well, his caustic presentation or delivery. David Price brings it up in his book. He says, his patter was replete with uncouth remarks unsuitable for polite society. In the Conjurer's Monthly Magazine, it mentions uh, Albini is being arrogant, both off stage and on. And there's actually a really harsh review of his act in one issue. And then I found this in a February 19th eight issue of the Conjurer's Monthly Magazine. It says, I have heard from a reliable source that Albini appeared one afternoon with a black eye at the Coliseum in Seattle, causing much merriment to the audience who at once noticed it. But in a 1910 issue of the Magical World Magazine, it says, Albini is very droll and his patter seems to please. And this got me wondering if perhaps Albini's sense of humor was such that it was missed by many, or perhaps the reviewer in this case was just giving Albini the benefit of the doubt. One thing is certain, he had a style that set him apart from others. Oh, and Albini was known to occasionally present his shows in a state of intoxication. But according to Price's book, you never knew which Albini you were going to get, the rude one or the refined one. Many magazines of the time, magical magazines, mention Albini working for the Sullivan and Considine circuit. David Price's book, A Magic Pictorial History of Conjurers in the Theater, explains that Albini was a witness to an event in John Considine's life. Apparently, Mr. Considine shot a policeman in self-defense, and Albini testified to such at trial. Considine was acquitted of the charges. What? Wait, what? That doesn't, holy mackerel. Okay, self-defense. You shot a police officer in self-defense. 
Uh, okay, I don't get it. All right, whatever. It's, you know, early 20th century, whatever. Anyway, the result was that Albini was booked continuously on the Sullivan and Considine circuit for the rest of his life. I'm always interested in what gets people into magic. And now I've got to shift slightly to Horace Golden. As a young man, Golden saw Albini perform and was mesmerized by his magic. He tried to learn the Albini egg bag, and word was he had a huge Albini lithograph poster in his uh, hotel room. One day, Albini came by for a visit, and what precipitated the visit, I don't know, but Albini, upon seeing this poster hanging in Golden's hotel room, was quite touched, and he went on to be a huge encouragement to Golden, and even taught him his handling of the egg bag, and then gave him written permission to present it, and it's likely that Horace Golden was the only person to actually have Albini's permission. On February 7, 1913, Albini ran an ad in Variety looking to franchise out his show. The ad reads, Nothing succeeds like success. A new idea for good magicians. I, Albini the Great, will put you on the road with a big illusion act and book it for you. We'll either sell you the goods or work with you on percentage. I have 90 illusions on hand. Three of my shows now ready and working. Rotaire. Booked for a solid 12 months with Sullivan and Constantine's circuit to follow. Devlin and Whedon open next month. A great opportunity for amateurs to go ahead. I'm always at home. Call. In May 1913, Albini was performing at the Colonial Theater in Chicago. And according to a piece in the Magical World magazine, he complained of an illness and was assisted by his son to his rooms at the Grand Hotel. This was following his first performance. Albini died suddenly in the early hours of Thursday, May 29, 1913. He was 53 years old when he died. He was buried in the Evergreen Cemetery and Mausoleum in Chicago, and he is listed by his stage name on his grave, Herbert A. Albini. After Albini's death in 1913, Stephen Juhas and Sam DuVries purchased the Albini show. This is according to the article in the Magical World magazine. However, the Sphinx in December of 1913 reported that Harry Bouton purchased several illusions from the Albini show. Harry would go on to become Blackstone. In the book, Blackstone, A Magician's Life by Dan Waldron, this story is disputed by Stephen Juhas, who claimed that Harry made models of the illusions but did not buy the originals. Sometime later, Harry made a full-size bridal chamber illusion, which was one of the illusions in dispute. At any rate, Albini was clearly unique. His cutting and edgy humor was likely well before his time, but he'll go down in magic history as one, one of the more colorful characters and the inventor of the small egg bag. And that, my friends, is episode 27 of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this look into the life of Herbert Albini. As usual, if you did like the podcast, please like the podcast. And if you're on iTunes or any platform that allows you to do written reviews, hey, consider writing a review for me. I would greatly appreciate that. And that's going to do it for episode 27 of the podcast. Thank you once again for listening. I really appreciate it. My name is Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and I hope you have a great week.